Suppose you've been out of the country for a couple of years and you found yourself coming home tomorrow. And when you got into Wichita, to your utter amazement, there are no lights, no decorations, no, no Christmas music. And beyond that, everybody's just behaving though it's like a normal Tuesday. Everybody's just going to work. You got Kellogg full of people, 7.30 in the morning. And you're, you're going to think to yourself, am I crazy or is everybody else crazy? You know, whatever happened to Christmas? And if you're old like me, you're going to ask the question, am I in a twilight zone? Or if you're younger, am I in a parallel universe? And, and you'd be right to think that way because obviously tomorrow is Christmas. And the way we behave tomorrow is different from any other day of the year. But it would be pretty much like what happened the very first Christmas. Because on that very first Christmas, there were powerful people. Maybe they were kings. We don't know if they were kings. Tradition says they were kings. There might have been three or there could have been 300. But what we do know is that they traveled halfway across the world to experience and to celebrate the birth of the greatest king in world history. And for years they had studied ancient prophecies. They had consulted um, the signs. I mean, after all, they had Daniel's prophecy. They had a, actually had a timetable, and they had followed that timetable. And sure enough, right on schedule, there was a phenomenon in the heavens that moved. In our, in our Bible, it says star, but really the Greek word just means a phenomenon in the skies. And that, of course, had been given to them by the prophet Daniel when he was exiled to Babylon. He had given them Numbers 2417 that said there would be a star associated with the birth of the Messiah. So these powerful people, perhaps kings, traveled halfway across the world, maybe taking half a year in their journey, to search out and to celebrate the birth of the greatest king of history. Now, the star led them right to Israel, as they had been told it would. Now, now put yourself in their place, if you don't mind, for a few moments. You're, you've traveled for months. You've traveled halfway across the world. You've interrupted everything that you have going on. And after all, you are very important. You could actually be the ruler of a country. And you're getting close to the city of Jerusalem because, after all, we just assume that if a king is going to be born, he's going to be born in the capital city. If you knew that the British were going to have a new king that would have been, you know, greater than all the other kings before, you would just naturally go to London. you go to Buckingham Palace. And so these, these guys were on their way to Jerusalem thinking, you know what, when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be crazy there. I mean, people are going to be out of their heads celebrating. This is going to be the greatest king in world history. You know, we're probably not going to be able to get a room. We're probably going to have to stay somewhere out, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of town. And they're just going to be crazy. They're going to be wired when we get there to Jerusalem. And yet, when they get into the city limits of Jerusalem, it would be pretty much like if you came home tomorrow and nothing was going on. Anything, not, it, there was an amazing sense of normalcy. There was no music, no dancing, no lights, no celebration. And I don't know if they just asked somebody in town or if they asked everybody in town. The construction of the language in Greek seems to indicate they just kept asking everybody. But perhaps they went to the city, city council and asked this question. Where is he, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Now, I grew up in church, and I'm guessing a few of you at least grew up in church. And when you hear that verse, and even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably seen that verse in the Peanuts Christmas special. I mean, when we, when we, when we hear that, I don't know about you, but I sort of hear that in Christmas Eve tones. You know, where is he who was born king of the Jews? I don't think they asked the question that way. I, I think there is this sense of what the heck is going on here. I mean, there is a sense of expectation. We, you know, and I think they must ask the question like this. You know, where is he? You know, where, where is he? You know, and have you ever known somebody so important you didn't even use their name, you just used the pronoun? You know, he, where is she? And I think that's the way they ask the question, where, where is he? You know, we saw a star. I mean, all the way over in Babylon, sure we saw it here. 
We saw a star, and, and we've come to, to do what everybody should do. We've, we've come to do our part. We've come to worship him. And they expected everybody to know, but instead nobody knew anything. Odd juxtaposition. Outsiders with information and insiders who were fogged by ignorance. Well, if that's strange, the response they got must have felt even stranger because the Bible says that when the king, who was Herod, when he heard this, he was disturbed. The word means agitated in all Jerusalem with him. So in other words, it wasn't just king, the king. Everybody in town was totally freaked out by these wise men coming asking the question, where is the one who has a legitimate right to rule? I, the last thing I want to do on glorious Christmas Eve is to spend time giving you a little bit of a, a history talk, but let me give you, just give me a little latitude here. What you should know at this point when Jesus was born was that there was a lot of tension in the air. There was a tenuous relationship. It was fragile. It was held together with a lot of, a lot of concern. For one thing, Rome ruled the world. But Rome tried their best in a saccharine kind of way to be a benevolent dictatorship. And one of the things that they tried to do to make, the, make it a little easier for their conquered peoples is that sometime they would install a puppet king that was of the nationality of those people in the hopes that the people would feel better about a king being from their own nation, even though Rome was really the one pulling, pulling the strings. And Rome had done that. Rome had installed a guy named Herod. But what you should know about Herod was that Herod was not a... He was, the Romans were clumsy. They had no idea what they were doing. But really, Herod wasn't even completely Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. He was an Ida man. But he had beers with Caesar. So after all, the Caesar said, hey, you know what? Let's put Herod in there. And then, of course, you have the people. And the people were unhappy with Rome in the first place. And they knew that Herod was a fake and a puppet. So it was a tenuous relationship. And the, the strange thing about it, when Jesus was born, Rome wasn't happy because they, they didn't want a puppet there in the first place. Herod wasn't happy. He was maybe the most insecure human being who ever lived. In fact, some of us are going to deal with some family insecurity over the next 24 hours, and we know the pain that insecurity can create in a family. But you don't know it to the extent that perhaps that, that Herod had insecurity. Some of you have heard that Herod slaughtered the innocents at the birth of Jesus, and that seems horrific, and we have a hard time imagining that. But what you should know is Herod was so afraid somebody was going to get his throne. I mean, by this time, he's elderly. He's probably very ill. He doesn't think he's going to live a lot longer. He's terrified somebody's going to get his throne. He killed three of his own sons. There's more than you want to know, but the Greek word for pig, hus, is very close to the Greek word for son, huias. There's only one letter different. There was a saying in the first century that it was safer to be Herod's hus, his pig, than his huias, his son. He had three of his sons killed, had his wife killed, had his mother-in-law killed, had his brother-in-law killed. He was always changing his will. So he wasn't a happy man. He wasn't happy with the situation. The people weren't happy for obvious reasons. You know, I'm in my 38th year of pastoring, and, and I've observed people for years and I'm always amazed at how the people can continue on in a toxic relationship where everybody suffers and nobody's happy. But it's, it's as if at least we're familiar with it. I mean, at least we know it. And what's that saying we have? It's the devil you do know versus the devil you don't know. And so that's kind of what was going on in the first century when Jesus was born. This is why all Jerusalem was agitated. Nobody was happy with the relationship, but at least it held together. And the last thing anybody needed was these guys coming halfway across the world, stirring the pot, asking the question, hey, where is the one who has a legitimate right to rule? 
I mean, they thought they were asking a perfectly innocuous question, but they didn't realize they had stepped on the ultimate tripwire of tripwires because it unsettled Rome, it unsettled Herod, it unsettled the people. Where is the one who has a legitimate right to reign? Well, maybe we ought to take a few moments and explore what I mean by a legitimate right to reign. Israel had had a dynasty of kings. If you've ever heard the story of David and Goliath, you know that David was the one handpicked by God to be Israel's first king of God's choice. David was not royal born. He was born the eighth of eight sons. Not much is expected of you when you're the baby of eight kids. David was the eighth of eight sons and lived in this little podunk place called Bethlehem. His family was dirt poor, and David had the lowest job in the family of keeping a family sheep. But God saw something he liked in David. so amazing how that God sees things in people that sometimes people don't see. And God picked David, and God said, I want you to be my king. Well, in years to come, David by now is middle-aged. He's been very successful. At this point, Israel is perhaps the most powerful nation in the world. You can make the argument David's the most powerful man in the world. He lives in a magnificent palace. He's probably got summer homes on, in Caesarea on the coast. And David is living the good life. And one day David is praying, and he's talking to God, and he's saying something like this. God, it's not right. I live in this magnificent palace. And at that time, the people still worshiped at the tabernacle, which was basically a tent that had been constructed in Moses' time. And David said, Lord, it's not right. I, I live in this beautiful house, and you're in a tent. Let me build you a house. God sometimes, I think, is very patient with our, our lack of understanding. God said, David, I don't live in a house. I, made the, I created the universe. I don't live in a house. But I tell you what, David, it's a good thank you for that, for the, for the generosity in your heart. I don't want you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But house in just a little different sense, house in the sense of dynasty. I want you to share with me a verse of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 7 16. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. Wow, that's a powerful statement. A lot of you guys and gals like to study history. You know that there's been no world power that's lasted over a 1,000 years. Here in this grand experiment of America, Republican form of democracy, we're not even 300 years yet. And yet God had said to David, I'm going to establish your dynasty for all time. And, he, and in case David missed it, your throne will be secure forever. I don't know what David thought. Maybe he thought, well, you know, this works, dynasties. You know, I'll be on the throne, then I'll get old, I'll die. One of my descendants will be on the throne. He or she will die. Then one of the descendants will be on the throne. Then that person will die. And I guess God is just saying this thing's going to rock on forever. People will die. A new king come along. Part of my family. But if that's what he was thinking, the prophet Isaiah cleared it all up for us. Because with a telescopic lens of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and some of you probably got Christmas cards with this verse on it, Isaiah wrote, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Look at this, Mighty God. In our world has seen some great men and women who were leaders, but I don't think that any of them could reasonably be called Mighty God. And yet Isaiah is saying, someday a king will come along who will be known as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, his government and its peace, his government, not their government, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. A special king. 
his kingdom would never end. Guys, this is who the wise men were looking for. I mean, kings were born all the time. They wouldn't go traipsing off halfway across the world, taking half, of the, half a year of their lives to go after any ordinary king. They were going after the king we just read about. This is who they were looking for. But Israel hadn't had a legitimate king in 500 years. They'd gone through one captivity after another captivity. And now they had Herod and the Romans. And the last thing they did was these outsiders coming in asking this inflammable question. Because, and I think sometimes like Americans, people just didn't believe anymore. 500 years of difficult living is, is hard to get over. I, don't, I just don't think people believed anymore. But in any event, it scared Herod enough that he called the religious experts and he said, hey, I know there's all these prophecies about this guy Messiah being born. Where was he supposed to be born exactly? And so the religious experts <coughs> blew the dust off the scriptures and they said, well, we, we, we've read here, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem and Judea. And that's right. Micah had written that 500 years before Jesus was born. You read it. It's one of those books we rarely ever read. This Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And Micah said, yeah, Bethlehem. Now, I wasn't there, but I'm thinking Herod said, Bethlehem? Bethlehem? Are you kidding me? Bethlehem? I mean, no disrespect. That would be like saying he's going to be born in Clearwater or Mound Ridge. I mean, those are fine little communities. I mean, great communities, especially if you're from there. But they're just, you know, small communities. And, I mean, after all, Herod lived in Jerusalem, and he's saying, Bethlehem? You've got to be kidding me. But over in Bethlehem, something was happening. A young couple had just given birth to a baby. A nondescript carpenter married to a young, young girl, a peasant girl. In fact, for crying out loud, the baby had been born in the stable. And you know what we read about? And in fact, here's what's interesting. The baby wasn't even supposed to be born in Bethlehem. This couple was from Nazareth. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, uh -oh. because he belonged to the house and lineage of David. Now, I can be a little skeptical and iconoclastic. And so if I'm listening to this talk, I'm sitting out there listening to this, and I'm saying, I can see where you're going, and I want to catch you before you get there. Because you Christians all say, or some Christians say, that Jesus was born of a virgin. But now you want to make the point that he has a right to rule forever because he's of the ancestor of the lineage of David. Mark, you can't have it both ways. Because if Joseph is his biological father, then he's not born of a virgin. If, on the other hand, Jesus was born of a virgin, I don't care if Joseph was a descendant of King David, he doesn't have a biological right to the throne. Well, that's going to back me into a corner. But let's set that aside for just a moment and at least make the point that Joseph was a descendant of King David. I mean, we've been in a series at New Spring called Family Tree, and for the last five weeks we've been exploring interesting people who are in Jesus' family tree. We've discovered strange people in Jesus' family tree, pagans, a couple of prostitutes. It was, it's just an interesting thing when you start discovering who's in Jesus' family tree. But tonight we're going to talk about Mary and Joseph for just a moment. So let's look at Joseph over here. And if you look at Joseph, you'll see that, as the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, Jacob was the father of Joseph. So there's Joseph's dad, Jacob. And then if you go back 10 verses before, you, you find David. It says Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. So there's King Solomon over there, David's son. And so if you track Joseph back generations, obviously you get to David. And I will make the point that 
Jacob was, uh, Joseph was considered the, the legal father of Jesus because they were married. Joseph and Mary were married, so therefore he was not good enough. And say, Mark, that's too cute by half. Well, what you should know is that Matthew's family tree, by the way, have you ever tried to read the New Testament? If you're reading an old translation, you get all the begats and begats and begats, and you're wondering, why is this in the Bible? When I've got questions I would like God to answer, and if he wants to take up space, why doesn't he put the questions I want answered in? Those begats are there for a reason. And Dr. Luke also gives us a genealogy of Jesus. And he, he talks about Joseph. It says he was the son, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Jacob Joseph's father? Who's this guy, Heli? And then we find David eight verses later, Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. You see, in Greek, there's no word for son-in-law. It's only like you would be if your if your father-in-law, whatever his name was, if you if you appeared in ancient writings, it would be the son of. So Luke, Luke's family tree, is Mary's genealogy. So if you wonder why God picked that very special couple, Joseph and Mary, it's so that he would have a legal right to the throne through Joseph, and a genetic line to the throne through Mary. Somebody could still say, well, wait a minute, Mark. We read a few moments ago that when Jesus is king, he's going to rule forever. But if I, got, if, I don't, if, if I don't have the story wrong, I think he, like, came to the earth and he, like, was a teacher and he got on the wrong side of the powers that were and got himself crucified. And uh, that's the last we heard of him after a, a resurrection and an ascension. I, I don't think he was a king. And by the way, that was an issue when he was on the earth because a lot of people wanted him to start a kingdom. But the Bible is so clear on this, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, that the Son of God would not come once, but that he would come twice. You see, the first time he came, he had something he had to deal with. You and I had breakage in our relationship with God. Breakage that can't be fixed by religion. Breakage that can't be fixed by New Year's resolutions. Something called sin. There is, I don't know about you, but I find it easier to do wrong than do right. Nobody has to teach me to do wrong. I just sort of gravitate to it. And all of us have that within us. And God sent Jesus into the world the first time so that he could be God and human at the same time. He lived the perfect life that you and I can't live, ran the table for 33 years, and then he laid down on a Roman cross, and the way God looked at it, the blood that flowed out of his veins was a currency that paid for all our sins, past and future. But the Bible is also clear that Jesus is coming another time. In fact, what's interesting to me is I think that here we are in 2012, soon to be 2013, and, you know, I got sort of tickled everybody asking me about the end of the world. I, we're not headed for the end of the world. We're headed for the beginning. We're headed, I mean, here's the thing. When bad things happen as they have recently happened, people will ask me, where is God? Guys, I want us to have a straight talk here tonight. You really don't think God's in control of this world the way it is right now, do you? You don't think he's really in charge. Now, ultimately, he's more powerful than anyone else, but Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. But there is coming a time when Jesus will rule, and when he does, when he does, things will be so different. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible about what conditions will be like when Jesus rules, but I'm going to cherry pick and give you four or five, and then I'll be through with this time. Let me give you this one from Isaiah 9-7. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice. Oh, we could use that, couldn't we? 
And then in Zechariah 9, verse 10, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, not coalitions, not treaties, but peace. Peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. In Micah chapter 4, verse 4, every person will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. That means it's, a, it's a reference to prosperity. And God only knows the damage, the emotional damage that fear does in our culture today. But think about this. When Jesus is king, no one will make them afraid. My biggest issue, and I've been honest with my church about this for years, my biggest issue is anxiety. I've struggled with anxieties all my life. I'm a poster child for ADHD, and anxiety tends to piggyback on that. I'd, I'd be, I'm always concerned. If I didn't have anything to worry about, I'd worry about that. That's just my nature. But imagine what a world would be like where nobody has to be afraid. No woman has to be afraid of being abused. No child has to be afraid. No nation has to be afraid of another nation. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. Perfect ecological balance. We can't even get the Republicans and the Democrats to live together. That's going to be awesome to have the wolf and the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. I don't know of any world leader that can pull that off. I'm going to close with this one from Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Next to the last chapter of the Bible, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death. I, I, had, I talked to a friend of mine who lost his wife a few months ago, and this is his first Christmas. I just talked to him about an hour and a half ago. We're so accustomed to death, it's hard for us to imagine a world without death. I, my wife and I went to Town West. I'm in, I live in Andover, so I rarely ever go to Town West, but we were there this last week. And we're walking around, and I promise you, there is a, there's a shop in Town West Mall, and they sell cremation urns, and they have caskets on display out there at the mall. And, and I have an odd sense of humor, and my wife stopped me because I wanted to go over there and just walk around, and when someone came up to me, I just want to say, I'm just browsing, just looking around. Just looking for that perfect gift. <laughs> no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Guys, if all your hope is bound up in this life, it's never going to work. My heart was crushed when I saw what happened in Pentecost. And we talk about what we're going to do to fix it, and we should do everything we can. We, sh we should take every opportunity to do everything within our power to make sure to the extent that we can that crises like this don't happen. But I think if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, we're going to have to come to a place where we understand this world is broken in a way that we just can't fix it. That is why Jesus came into our world. He didn't just come to be a cute baby lying in a manger. He came to pay for our sins. And he's coming back to be king. When the wise men found him, and they did find him in Bethlehem, the Bible says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, 
And they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chest and presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I hope God kept that on video because I want to see it when we get to heaven. Because I just think this is an essentially thing in the world. I don't know how many there were. There might have been three. There might have been 300. But we, and they may have been kings. I think they may have been. Who knows? But they, they walk into a house where there's a peasant couple with a little baby. And these extraordinary world leaders, can you see them as they go to the crib where Jesus is and they get on their knees? And if they were kings, the last thing they would have done was to have taken off their crowns and laid them at the crib of a peasant baby and let her die. What were they saying? If you'll allow me, I think this is what they were getting at. I think they were saying, you know what, we're not going to live to see you be king in this life. But we know that there's part of us that's going to live forever. And someday we'll be part of your kingdom in its reality for what it eventually will be. But we don't want to wait to that moment. We want you to be our king now. And guys... I don't know how long it will be before Jesus returns. I know that you and I are not going to live forever in this life, but the real you is never going to die. The part of you that's alert, that's cognitive, that's you, the part of you that's your personality, that part of you will never die. That is your soul and spirit. You only live in a body. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And that part of you, when you leave this life, goes right into the presence of God with Jesus as your king. Guys, I want to do something on this Christmas Eve. If, if you, like the wise men, would like to invite Jesus Christ into your life, and I'm not talking about religion, because religion is just man's flailing attempt to try to appease God. But the story of the Bible is God's unconditional love for you and his desire to reach you. Jesus has paid the price for all your dysfunction and sin. And if you would receive a gift, I, listen, most of us are going to celebrate Christmas tomorrow morning. You know what? If you tried to receive a gift and you reached for your wallet to pay for it, you would insult the person that gave you the gift. There's only one way to receive a gift, and that's to reach out and accept it. And the Bible tells us that eternal life and a relationship with God is a gift. And if you'd be willing to invite Jesus in, he'll come into your life. I mean, what a, what a, what a wonderful time to receive him on Christmas Eve. If you would like to, I'm going to pray a prayer with you. These aren't magic words. What matters is what you mean. But if you would like to join me, I'll pray it slowly so you have a chance to think about it. You can, you can opt out of the prayer at any moment that I pray something that you don't want to pray. But if you want to invite Jesus to come into your life, you can do that right now. Here we go. Dear God, I know I've done wrong, and I can't fix a broken world. But I believe you love me unconditionally. And I believe Jesus came into the world believe he died for my sins and I believe he was resurrected I receive Jesus as my king thank you for making me God's child in Jesus name amen hey I know you may have a million questions you say Mark I just prayed but I didn't hear angels or anything like that I didn't either when I prayed but here's the thing I've got a I've got a gift I want to give you it's it's got a DVD a little book that I wrote that answers a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. When you came in, you got to talk to us, Carrie. I know we're so crowded, but 
there's a, there's a guest services out in the lobby there. There's a little one back by the coffee shop. If you just prayed to receive Christ, would you just bring that back and say, you know, I promise you nobody has you to stalk you. Just say, I prayed with Mark, and they'll give you this, and you take it with you. I'll be back in just a few moments. Thank you, though. God bless you, and Merry Christmas.